Well, let me encourage you this morning that I'm confident that the Lord is up to something powerful today. And the reason why I say that is because Chris and I don't necessarily coordinate the songs that he picks and based on the message I'm going to preach. We do sometimes, but oftentimes he just picks the songs and I just pick the text. And um, I didn't write the testimonies of the people who are getting baptized today, but having sat through uh, the equipping hour and giving them a dry run and just listening to their testimonies, sharing their testimonies, I'm like, no way. This is crazy. Because the songs that we've just sung and the testimonies that you're about to hear are exactly what God laid on my heart to preach this morning in preparation for our baptism. And so whenever I see the Spirit of God coordinating songs and testimonies and sermons, I'm like, okay, Lord, I just want to get out of the way. Because apparently you've got a message that you want to be heard loud and clear um, that uh, cannot be missed because it's in every element of our service um, through the music and the testimonies and the message. And so with that, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at perhaps what are perhaps some of the most familiar verses in the Bible. For those of us that study the Bible and read the Bible, I'm sure you're familiar with these verses. In fact, I would bet that some of you even have these verses memorized. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Father, I'm excited to see how you're going to use your word today and the particular truth in your word that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which we've sung about. And we're, we're about to hear from these people that are getting baptized and now from your word itself, you speaking to us through these verses. Would you have your way in all of our lives for your glory, we ask, and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, you know we had the privilege of celebrating communion together, and today we have the joy of celebrating baptism. What a blessing to be able to uh, observe the two ordinances of the church back-to-back on back-to-back Sundays. Uh, As you know, during his life and ministry here on earth, Jesus commanded his followers to maintain two practices on a regular basis, to remember his death on the cross in our place by celebrating communion, and to recognize those who become followers of Christ by baptizing them. But having said that, Jesus never intended either of these things to serve as means of salvation or ceremonial, ritualistic works that we must do in order to have our sins forgiven and go to heaven. 
This should be patently obvious based on the fact that Jesus requires these things of those who have already been saved. In other words, the requirement to get baptized and to take communion is that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You've been born again already. In other words, getting baptized and and taking communion does not save us. Doing them simply shows that we are saved. They are not means of God's grace, but marks of God's grace or manifestations of God's grace or evidences of God's grace. And when it comes to baptism in particular, some churches believe and teach that a person must be baptized in order to be saved. They think a person gets saved when they get baptized and they base their salvation on their baptism and they even equate their salvation with their baptism. I've asked many people in the past, hey, tell me how you got saved or tell me when you got saved. When were you born again? And they say, well, I was baptized. That's the first thing that comes out of their mouth is they want to tell me about their baptism. I said, I didn't ask you when you got baptized. When were you born again? That's what I want to know. But so many people just equate that experience with their salvation. And so there are those who believe that that you're not a Christian unless you get baptized, and you're not a Christian until your sins are washed away through the waters of baptism. And so consequently, they believe that if a person dies before they're baptized, they will go to hell. And yet the good news is, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of our own, including baptism. And probably the the clearest, most straightforward passage in God's word about the nature of salvation is right here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. And in these three verses, Paul explained how and why a person is saved from sin, death, and hell. And in doing so, he obliterated the common belief in, in so many people's minds out there that, that a person is saved by good works. But at the same time, he addressed the equally damning notion that a person can be saved and not do good works. And ever since the church began, there has been a lot of confusion about the relationship between faith and works in regards to a person's salvation. And the two fallacies that have confused people the most throughout the centuries are these. Number one, it is possible to do works in order to be saved. That's fallacy number one. It's it's possible to do works in order to be saved. The second fallacy, it is possible to be saved and not do good works. These are the two most damning heresies, I believe, being taught in the church today. And believing either of these two errors will keep a person from being saved and consequently will keep them from going to heaven when they die. Sometimes these two fallacies are presented with two words. The first is legalism, which is anti-grace, in other words, Uh, insisting that a person has to do certain things in order to be saved. And it's not that that these people don't believe that a person is saved by God's grace. They do, but they don't believe a person is saved solely by God's grace. 
You have to be baptized. You need to take communion. You need to go through confirmation. I went through confirmation in a Lutheran church growing up. Uh, you, you have to have these other things happen, last rites and other things like that. And so the, the role that works play in the salvation equation, if you will, is misunderstood or misappropriated, misplaced. And, and, and in a legalist's mind, this is, the, this is the equation, faith plus works equals salvation. Whereas the Bible teaches faith equals salvation plus works. See the difference? That's, that's the difference between heaven and hell. And so there's legalism, but there's also antinomianism, a big word that simply means anti-law. And this, is, this is, uh, a, a, a describes the people that insist that a person who is saved doesn't have to do any good works. And in an effort to maintain the simplicity and the purity of the gospel message that a person is saved by grace through faith alone, which we affirm and we agree with, Unfortunately, some have minimized the place that good works plays in a believer's life. This is what uh, you may be more familiar with, the free grace movement. And they argue that a person is saved by simply believing in Jesus Christ, even if there's never any evidence or fruit in their life that they've been truly born again. In other words, it doesn't matter how we live our lives as long as we believe in Jesus. This is maybe you're more familiar with the term easy believism. Do you see how damning both of these false notions are? The first group frantically spends their entire life trying to earn their way to heaven, but they end up in hell. The second group apathetically coasts through life assuming they're going to heaven, but they too end up in hell. And so Paul wanted to help people avoid these two false ideas which damn souls to hell. And what I think is, I find very interesting about this particular text is that no one more adamantly rejected good works as a ground of salvation than the Apostle Paul. But at the same time, no one more clearly expected good works as a fruit of salvation than Paul. And so he faithfully maintained this balance between these two vital truths that a person is saved by faith apart from good works, but a person who is saved will do good works. And I think the reformers said it best. They had a little phrase, a little catchphrase, and it goes like this. A person is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Let me say that again. A person is saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. And I think that, that little statement, popularized by the, by the reformers, is really a superb summary of what Paul wrote here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And he, he really placed these two truths side by side to provide us with a, a clear understanding of the role that faith and works play in God's work to save us and to sanctify us. And so I want to just quickly look with you, first of all, at how we're saved, and we're going to talk about justification, how we're made right with God, 
And then secondly, why we're saved. And that's more the realm of sanctification. And so look, first of all, at how we're saved in verses 8 and 9. Notice Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That for connects what Paul is about to say with what he got, just got done saying. And he just, gave one of the, just got done giving one of the greatest explanations of God's grace in the entire Bible Verses 1 through 7, I'm not going to read it because I think one of the guys getting baptized has that into his test, built into his testimony. He's going to read that text for us. But in order to, to further clarify what he had written in verses 1 through 7, he, he elaborates here on the grace of God in verses 8, 9, and 10. And notice he says, for by grace. You have been saved through faith. Again, notice verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. In other words, this is the cause of salvation. This is the instrument by which God saves us. It's his grace, which can be defined very simply as his unearned, undeserved kindness and favor towards helpless and hopeless sinners. That's God's grace, his unearned and undeserved kindness and favor towards helpless and hopeless sinners. That's why you hear me often say or pray, Lord, we have not, none of us deserve to be here this morning, and none of us have earned the right to be here this morning. We are simply objects of your grace. And he says, for by grace you have been saved. Notice he says, you have been saved. This is in the original language, which, what is called a perfect passive participle, and some of these Greek grammar things are helpful from time to time in, in going uh, to the next level in our understanding of some of these uh, phrases and words. So the perfect tense uh, describes an action that was completed in the past with results that continue into the future. So this is, Paul was emphasizing the continual state of our salvation, in other words, that once you're saved, you stay saved. Your salvation is secure. In other words, you don't have to keep working to keep yourself saved, thinking, oh, maybe if I don't do something, I'll lose my salvation. No, it's, it's secure. It's set. And it's also in the passive tense here, which means that the subject, which is us, by the way, we're the ones being saved, we are acted upon by an outside force. In other words, in the passive tense, we'd say the ball was hit. Not, I hit the ball, the ball was hit. So it emphasizes, again, that we have nothing to do with earning or keeping our salvation. And here we draw, this is one of the verses from where we draw our doctrine of eternal security. In other words, if you didn't do anything to earn your salvation, then why would you think you could do something to lose your salvation? Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Clay, that's your verse, bud, right? You're going to share that. I'm telling you, man, the Spirit's up to something here this morning. I guess maybe we're just reading from the same Bible, right? So we're, we're, we're all coming from the same source. So that is what happens. So notice he says here, for by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, faith is the means by which we receive grace. It's the channel through which God's grace flows. You think about 
when you're parched and you want to drink and so you get a cup of water and you have a straw in that cup and you drink that water through that straw, what, what quenches your thirst? Is it the straw or what saves you, I guess you could say, if you were like out in the desert and ready to die and somebody hands you a cup of water with a straw in it? It wasn't the straw, right? It wasn't your faith. It was the water. The water saves, not the straw. And so a definition of faith here, we define grace. Well, what does faith mean? Faith means believing in something, placing your confidence in something, trusting in something enough to commit your entire life to it, even if you can't see it. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And believe it or not, or whether you, I should say whether you realize it or not, we exercise faith every day. In fact, we, not just every day, all day. Whenever we walk up to a vending machine, that's an act of faith. You put your money in there and you push a button. Number one, you think you're going to get, you have faith it's going to work. And then whatever is in there hasn't expired, Right? It's not going to kill you. It's going to taste good, right? We, we put faith in that vending machine. When you go to the bank and you hand your money, put, put your money or your checks in this little tube and shoot it up, right? This little thing, container, shoots up in the tube to some lady you don't even know. You're giving your money away to this person you've never met, probably. But you have faith. Anytime you get in an airplane, you have to trust the law of physics and uh, that that guy who's flying the plane was listening in class when he was at flight school, right? Whenever you drive across a bridge, I, I guarantee you, whenever you see a bridge, you don't say, oh, excuse me, everybody, we've got to pull over and I'm going to go out and examine this bridge before I go over it. No, you just drive over it. You're exercising faith that the engineers that designed that and constructed that, that they did their job. When you came in here this morning, you exercised faith. When you sat down in that chair, I guarantee you, nobody kind of looked under the chair to make sure it was, you know, checked it to make sure it was solid, it was going to hold you. You just sat down. You had faith. All of us have been to the doctor at some point. That's an act of faith. I mean, when we get sick and we know that we can't make ourselves well, we go to the doctor. And he examines us, and he tells us what's wrong with us, and if it's a serious problem, we let him put us to sleep and cut us open and mess around in the inside of our body. That's an act of faith. Even if it's a minor problem, we're willing to take some mysterious stuff that he prescribes that we pick up from a total stranger through a little drawer that pops out of a wall at the pharmacy, believing it's going to make us better. That's an act of faith. We don't understand everything that our doctor tells us or does to us, but we trust him. We have confidence in him. We believe in him. We have faith in him. And spiritually speaking, the object of our faith is not a doctor, but it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in Christ, we're acknowledging that we have a terminal disease called sin. And there's nothing that we can do about it. And so we trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross as the remedy for our sin. And again, we may not understand everything that Christ says or does, 
but we trust him, we believe in him, we put our confidence in him, we have faith in him. Notice what else Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The question is, does that refer to just the faith that's not of ourselves or the entire phrase? For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. Well, grammatically, it could refer to either faith or the entire process of salvation. I think the latter is better because theologically, at the end, it doesn't matter. Faith is included in the process of salvation and the entire process is of God and not of ourselves. We can't even congratulate ourselves for placing our faith in Christ because God causes us to have faith in Christ. John 6, no one, this is Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He went on to say in a few verses later, John 6, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So faith is not a work. It's a gift granted to us by God. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 2 Peter 1.11, or excuse me, 1.1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So Paul didn't want his readers here to get the false impression that God had done everything to save us and all we need to do is add the faith. Like he did his part and now we're going to do our part. As if grace is God's part and faith is our part. None of it is of ourselves. It's all a gift of God. Notice he makes that very clear in the next statement. It is the gift of God. It's a gift that God freely offers us with no strings attached. Romans 6.23, one of you guys quoted that in your testimony. Ethan, right? You're you're, going to quote Romans 6.23. Were you looking at my notes, man, when you were writing your testimony? I don't think so. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When it's your birthday or you get a Christmas present, that present is free. You know, somebody doesn't give you your Christmas present and say, oh, here, here's the invoice because you signed this for us, please. You, didn't, you, you, you can't earn it. You don't have to pay for it. You can't win it. You don't have to do anything but just what? Say thank you. 1 John 1, 12 But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then just to make sure that it's clear, Paul goes on in verse 9. He says, not as a result of works. Not as a result of works. Not because of anything we do or did. Listen carefully. Hell is filled with people who thought they could get to heaven by doing stuff. Whether that was going to church faithfully, 
getting baptized, getting confirmed, taking communion, going to confession, giving to charity, being a, a good neighbor, living a moral life. The Bible says all of these things amount to nothing in God's eyes. When it comes to our salvation, they are filthy rags. It's another verse somebody's quoting this morning. And so consequently, none of them have the ability to save us. And, and Scripture could not be clear on this point. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. There's other verses I could read. Let me just read one more, Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. In other words, the moment you add works of any kind or any amount to grace, then it stops being grace. It's not grace anymore. And if we're saved, if we are saved by our good works, then the work of Christ on the cross was unnecessary. Why? Because we are our own Savior. And if we are our own Savior, then we should worship ourselves. And I think this whole concept of not being able to do anything to save ourselves is a stumbling block to a whole lot of people. Why? Because it's the, it's the, the exact opposite of the way that the world works. The world is set up. If you want to get on the team, you've got to try out. And if you're good enough, you make the team. And if you want to get the job, you've got to interview. And if that interview goes well enough you get the job or that resume has enough good stuff in that resume, right? Then you get to do what you want to do. The fact is none of us are good enough to make it into heaven, but we all are bad enough to make it to hell. And so notice how he ends verse 9. He says, not as a result of works, so that no one may what? Boast. The reason we can't work our way into heaven is to prevent, to prevent us from boasting. Which all of us have a tendency to do. Trent was very transparent and vulnerable this morning, talking about how easy it is to gloat, even if it's in our own minds. It may not even come out of our mouths, but we're at least thinking these things. We, lo we love to take credit for stuff. But when it comes to salvation, the only thing we can take credit for is our sin. That I was the sinner in the mix who needed to be, desperately needed to be saved. And so God designed salvation in a way where he gets all the glory from our salvation. We get none. And so we're left to do nothing but boast about how awesome our God is. How awesome is his wisdom. How awesome is his grace. How awesome is his mercy. How awesome is his justice. And so we'll spend eternity in heaven boasting 
about all that we know to be true about God and all that was revealed to us about him through the gospel. That's how we're saved. Now let's look quickly at why we are saved. Verses 8 and 9, I think, focus on justification. Verse 10, focus on our sanctification. Notice he says, for we are his workmanship. Again, for is explaining the reason why we can't boast. He just got done talking about why we can't boast or take any credit for our salvation. Why? Because we are his workmanship. Literally, poema, which is where we get the English word poem. We're his handiwork. We're his masterpiece in progress. We are unfinished sculptures that God is in the process of shaping into the image of Jesus Christ. And we know based on Romans 8, 29 and 30, where he says that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. So God wants us to be an exact replica of his Son, Jesus. He wants us to think like Jesus, act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, respond like Jesus. And so God uses different tools to chip away at our lives and sculpt us and shape us and make us more Christ-like. He uses his word. He uses prayer. He uses fellow believers. He uses trials. These are all part of his little sculpting toolbox that he pulls those things out every once in a while and is just chipping away at us. But notice he says here, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We have been made new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is what is referred to as efficacious grace. Efficacious grace, which means simply that God's grace is effective. That God's sovereign grace is certain to produce the desired or intended results. In other words, God's grace cannot fail in accomplishing his purpose for saving us, which was, make, was making us like Jesus. Again, what is the purpose of salvation? Why did God save us? He gets specific here. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And don't miss the connection here. Notice it says in verse 9, we are saved not as a result of works or not by works, but he says in verse 10, we are saved for works. Huge difference. Again, the difference between heaven and hell. Salvation is not the result of good works, but salvation results in good works. God's works don't save us, they simply prove that we're saved. John 15, 8, Jesus said, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the Bible assumes that a believer's life will be characterized by good works. 
2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of every good deed. 2 Timothy 3, 17, the word of God causes a person to be adequately equipped for every good work. Titus, Titus chapter 2, verse 14 Talks about how Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And of course, we don't have time to look at this, but James, the book of James, James chapter 2, faith without works is what? Dead. And what he meant by that, he wasn't saying that we were saved by good works, but if we're saved, it will show by our works. That's what James was saying there. And so if you want to know if you're, you're truly saved, you need to look at your works, your words, your actions, your attitudes, and you need to examine the evidence in your life to see if you have genuine saving faith. In other words, the Bible describes what a Christian should look like. Well, does your life look like that? 2 Corinthians 13.5, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? So if your actions, your attitudes, your words don't match up with God's word, then perhaps you are not God's workmanship. The way we know this is because good works are in God's plan for the life of every believer. That's what he says here. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we might walk in them. In other words, before we uh, are saved... Our lives are characterized by sin, but now they should be characterized by good works. God prepared them beforehand. He planned them ahead of time. In other words, before time began, before we were saved, God mapped out a course for us to follow that has a bunch of good works that he wants us to do along the way. And so as we walk through life, we need to keep our eyes and ears open for the things that need to be done around us. And those things that God gives us the desire and the ability to do, we need to do them. And I think that's what Paul meant in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, when you're working out your salvation, we're in the sanctification realm now, right? That's when work is involved, when talking about salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, right? We're in the realm of sanctification. He says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. And we are who we are as Christians because of God's grace and God's grace alone. These seven folks who are going to get baptized this morning 
are trophies of God's grace. They're not here to pat themselves on the back and say, well, aren't I such a good person and, and that's why, you know, I'm looking forward to going to heaven someday. Um, and they're not here thinking that by getting up and sharing their testimony and getting wet, that somehow that's going to secure their salvation. Um, they're already saved. They've already committed their lives to Christ. If they were to die at this moment, they would go straight to heaven. But this is simply an act of obedience, that they want to publicly testify that they love Jesus and that they are convinced that he has saved them by grace through faith alone. 